Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ivy Unfiltered podcast. Barry and Vidal with you again. Unfortunately, this week we are not in person. However, we're really excited for another episode. Hello everybody from New York City. We're going to be talking about how to create a brilliant future, how to supercharge your marketing using behavioral science, how to become a master of persuasion, how to elevate your gravitas, and how to set boundaries so that you can find peace while trying to do everything else. It's going to be a jam-packed hour. And I'm going to dive right in with the first area we're going to focus on, which is all about long-termism versus short-termism, but the key learnings we got from Ari Wallach. So for this particular module, what really resonated most with me was Ari's prompt to ask ourselves as business leaders, if everyone used your product, how would the world look different? So whatever your product may be, whatever your service uh, is, if 8 billion people were using it on a regular basis, how would that world look different from the way it is today? So once we reflect on that, then the second question Ari asks us is, what has to be true for that to happen, for that world to exist? So when I heard this prompt, it really blew my mind. I was thinking about, wow, what if all 8 billion people were uh, leveraging Ivy? What would that look like? And what it has to be true for that to exist? So. If everybody was learning every day, getting introduced to a new thought leader and new life-changing concepts every day, I do believe that we would have a lot more objectivity as a global population because we would be rising above and beyond our daily concerns and really thinking about the bigger picture. We would also likely be able to better achieve our goals. So it's certainly a world that I would want to live in. And going to Ari's second question, but what has to be true for that to happen? I would say people need to be aware of what we do. So this podcast is a, a way of doing that. And we need to also be mindful of the fact that people have very little time. So the easier we can make it for people to get value uh, out of what we do, to engage with it every day, the better that, the faster we can get to that vision of everybody having it. So those were my resonations. Vidal, I'm curious what jumped out at you for from this module and what you'd want to do differently. I want to talk more about the societal level of long-term thinking, but I do want to explore a little bit more what you brought up. Thankfully, we're in the unique position as brothers to work on the same product. So I wanted to dive a little deeper into that vision of 8 billion people in the world using what Ivy has to offer and really learning and connecting at a deeper level. What was interesting, a couple of weeks ago, I was hosting a dinner with a group of COOs and I did an exercise with them where I prompted them to think about what the mission statement of the world should be and, and what are the three key values for Earth Incorporated. We had a really interesting discussion and at the end, I asked them, has anyone ever asked you this question before? They said, no. I was like, have you thought about these problems much before? They said, no. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. This is generally a highly educated group of people. They've all done primary school, high school, college, university, master's degrees, MBAs. And yet they've never considered what the purpose of humanity is and what the purpose of our society is. And I think this is a nice segue because it's a twofold resonation here. On the one hand, if everyone in the world was using Ivy, they would consider questions like this on an almost weekly basis because always with one of our modules, while we focus on individual performance and well-being, we focus on team performance and output and alignment. And then we also focus on overall impact for our clients, for societies at large. And it's very fascinating if we could bring people into a world where these questions aren't even being asked to them in school. Well, I hope in their adult life, they get to consider these questions and not only post-retirement at the end of their careers when they have less of an impetus or ability to make an impact. And that's really the that's really the big key learning for me in this regard is that we're so wired to think about the short term. We're so wired toward surviving the next day. I think if we think about ourselves evolutionarily, it's about going to sleep tonight and not getting eaten by lions and hoping we can find food to eat tomorrow. This is our kind of evolutionary biopsychological engineering or an evolution. And yet the long-term is so important and the long-term would massively change and inform our, our everyday actions if we're always focused on that long-term. So thinking about this on a more societal level, when I was in college, it wasn't quite framed in this way, but in the development economics class, we were talking about the concept of foreign aid 
and whether it was ultimately to the benefit or to the detriment of the recipients of that aid. Now, that actually boils down to more of an ideological question, but here's what it boiled down to me. It was a trade-off between the short term and the long term. And I want to give this example of South Korea, which as a society in the 1970s, there was a generation of South Koreans who decided we want to sacrifice our lifetimes so that our descendants have a much better future. And they implemented a very harsh industrial policy that was absolutely not beneficial to those in the works in the in the workforce at that point, but has led to dramatically improved quality of life for their descendants. And Ari thinks about this question and asks this question of what kind of ancestor do we want to be? And that's when you're like when you're thinking beyond your own lifespan, that's I think when we're really truly thinking long term. And in this world, we were talking about utopias last week. And I think on a societal level, the same way Ivy has a methodology, an ideology, a product that we can imagine all 8 billion people in the world using, there's also a product of societies and decisions that we need to make as individual nations, as wider groups, regional groups, and as humanity as a whole in terms of thinking about what would it look like if everyone lived in that same utopian, let's call it future, and what needs to be true to make that happen. Unfortunately, the question isn't often asked, as I did with my group of COOs, they had never considered that question. And that's really the big problem. We, we always consider what we're going to eat for lunch tomorrow, but we don't often question what is the life of my great grandchildren going to look like and what's blocking me from helping push that forward just a little bit every day of my life. I think the critical thing is that even the near-term decisions and choices can be so positively impacted by that long-term thinking because every day we're making a ton of different decisions. And if we're really solving for a local maximum, which is I just want to have a nice day today, that could be actually detrimental to our overall fulfillment in life and long-term impact. I do think that in the example I gave was his prompt of if everybody in the world use your product or service, well, how would that world be different? We can also just apply that straight up to our lives. So if everyone in the world got to benefit from our skills, individual, if everybody in the world got to benefit from my skills and my interests and my ability to change things, how would that world look different? And what has to be true for that to happen? Because obviously it's unlikely that any of us will impact all 8 billion people necessarily, but having that thought in mind will make sure that every minute we spend scales in the best way. So that at a personal level, I think when we're making decisions on a daily basis, not keeping in mind, making decisions in a way, what if the whole world did this? It could be interesting. It reminds me of Sartre, the existentialist philosopher. He had this thing called radical choice and radical choices essentially imagining, hey, you're about to make a decision. What if everybody in the world behaved that way? What would that be like? It's a very moving thought experiment, right? It could be something big, which is, do you want to lift up this person or bring them down? And what if all 8 billion people emulated your choice right now? Would you act differently? That's a very big one, but it could even Mm -hmm. be as simple as, do you leave the toilet seat up or down? And what if all 8 billion, in all things big and small, it's something uh, worth considering. Final thought on this module for me is nation states. I'm in the United States. I've been here for very many years, close to 20 now, I think all included. And what's interesting is when the U.S. was founded, there was a very clear vision of what kind of a society in the long term this was intended to be. It certainly wasn't what it aspired to be when the Declaration of Independence was signed. However, I can't help but feel some of that clarity has been lost recently, right? And that's why there's so much near-term conflict and lack of clarity, even though I would say if all Americans zoomed all the way out about what they really care about for the long term, they would have almost everything to agree on. But the near-term how to get there is often obstructing it. So one thing I would love to see in the world is a more positive narrative and then as a personal commitment, I feel like one of the things I would want to contribute towards through my skills and what I have access to is to just bring us back to that very positive original mission that made this country what it is 
and will make all the difference into continuing on a positive path versus reverting back to everything this country was not meant to be about. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's really not just a matter of positivity and negativity. I think it's a lack of a uniting vision that's multi-generational because that's really what the founding fathers provided and their writings are still as relevant today as they were when they wrote them. But nowadays, unfortunately, in the discourse, the thinking, the visions that are provided are extremely short-termist and they're all about the here and now and not about later in our lives and definitely not about our descendants' lives. And, and you can see that permeating throughout throughout society. And I think it applies. It's not, this is not solely a US problem. This is a global problem, but it's one that can be overcome with, I would say, truly visionary leadership. And we're going to talk about what kind of individuals provide that kind of truly visionary leadership and what we can do to potentially help people better be those visionaries in their organizations and their families for their countries and for the world. By the way, uh, another thought in an interview yesterday, which we'll get to in a future podcast episode, <laughs> but one thing that came up that I think is really interesting is, so with ChatGPT, if you wanted to really figure out how you could live the best life ever, you would ask questions around, okay, to really elevate the impact of my life, what should I do? You wouldn't just ask, what should I have for lunch? Or yeah. how do I maximize my revenues for this week? You would ask these bigger questions. Or if you wanted the, your country to be a better country, the prompt you would ask wouldn't be like, hey, what should this small town do differently in this place? You would ask, okay, what should the whole thing do differently? So you would want to zoom out and ask the biggest question, the best prompt, and then work backwards. Okay, how do we get there? How do we get there? Like backcasting from the desired future. And I think all of us are like ChatGPT, our own brains. If we prompt ourselves with something small, even if we crush it and get an A plus and giving the best answer and the best action plan, we're still capping ourselves. So it, Ari says that leaders, like I said, 98% of the time are thinking only about the shorter term, only 2% on the longer term. So maybe it's just about not ditch the short term, medium term thinking, but if you're thinking 2% of the time about the long term, maybe increase that to 10 or 20%, yeah. because as a leader, that's what people are looking to you for. Yeah. And Ari mentions this concept of the official future, which can be very stunting in that you decide this is what the future is going to look like and it's unchanging. And in some cases, we've talked about plan A's before and burning the boats. In some cases, that can be helpful. But in other cases, if you've accepted an official future, you don't really need to think about the long term. It allows you to stay in the short term mentality. So it is important, I think, to consider that there are many versions of that official future. There's the kind of guidelines around what you want that future to look like, but the specificity of it remains to be seen. And it's our actions that influence those outcomes every single day. It's not set in stone. We have to actually build towards that future. It's not just going to happen because we decided that's what it's going to be. Yeah. And he says there is no the future, right? There's the futures, there's po possible futures and it's up to us to nudge yeah. ourselves, our organizations, and the world towards the ones that we would want. So on the way to doing that, in order to be able to nudge ourselves towards the desired outcomes and the desired futures that we want, we got to get other people to get on the bus and go in the same direction. And that's often difficult to do because everyone is struggling themselves with trying to find harmony between their short, medium, and long-term goals. And that's just exponentially complicated by the fact that everybody also depends on each other to achieve their goals. So this is a good segue to the next module we're going to dive into, which is how we can supercharge our marketing, our influence with behavioral science based on all the lessons we learned from Nancy Harhut. So the key thing that resonated with me, a key takeaway from what she said was that 95% of our decisions are subconscious. Mm. So 95% of our decisions are automatic. That's, and this is not her, that's how she feels about it. Scientifically, 95% of the time, we're just going without even thinking one way or another. But subconsciously, we're very influenced by the different triggers and prompts and how things are framed. So she gave this example that if there's a $5 fee 
to do something, if you just, if you frame it as, hey, here's the thing and it's $5 to do it, compared to if you say, hey, here's the thing, there's a small $5 fee to do it, just adding that word small before the $5 increases purchases by 20%. Nothing changed about the product, nothing changed about the call to action, mm -hmm. nothing changed about the person who's being prompted, but that little word of small can change everything. So in my experience, <laughs> since the beginning of Ivy, more than a decade ago, uh, a forever thing I've been made fun of by our colleagues has been, oh, Barry is, should be like more concerned about being the CEO and just like on the big things. <laughs> why is he still editing the subject lines? And why is he still copy editing? He's like a copy intern instead of trying to spending more time being the CEO. But this gave me some validation because it made me realize, yeah, like one small word can actually make a difference. Obviously, that's not a reason to micromanage people, but I think that's why I've always gotten really stuck on, especially like the subject line or the title of something that we're doing. It really does matter. Specific experience share from that. Also, we used to do all kinds of campaigns on Facebook. We used to host a lot of events. And the campaign that did the best, which I also loved the most, was a title that said, Meet Beautiful Minds. Meet Beautiful Minds, three words. And it was a photo of people engaging with each other and deeply connecting with each other. Meet Beautiful Minds. And it's just, there's something about it that like, okay, there's meeting, there's beauty, okay, and then there's minds. It just communicated so much in a small way. So as a kind of a, what I want to change based on that reflection and this learning from Nancy is now with Ivy, we provide like, there's a brand new module every single day. There's so many learnings. There's so many ways in which these learnings can drive connection within families, within companies to help business leaders better achieve their goals. But that's a whole bunch of words. And like, people don't necessarily always connect with all the logical benefits. Sometimes it's about that catchy three forward phrase that gets people to take action. So I don't have that phrase yet, but I know that's something that I need to come up with. And I encourage our audience to do the same. I love that phrase. So maybe we should bring that campaign back, meet beautiful minds, because that's certainly something that we do with Ivy today. And it does also make me reflect on, on something I learned about Apple. Apple is probably one of the greatest marketing forces of our generation, for sure, and maybe in the history of businesses. And something that resonated me uh, with me recently was when they launched or when they did the launch video of their new Apple Vision Pro, their VR headset, it was very interesting to me that they didn't say the letters VR once. They didn't say the letters AR once. Um, they didn't use the letters AI once, and they have this policy of defining their own terms and not putting themselves into competitive environments. So they use their own terminology for things, nothing complex in their own in, in common vernacular, but they're very deliberate about not allowing for these comparisons and then really having people see their products as singular in some ways, if you want to be if you want to be more critical, singular monolithic experiences, but it it has proven really effective for them. And I think for all business leaders, we can think about it, it, there's always this challenge of do we want to tell our customers or potential customers exactly what we do in the words that they understand, or do we want to define something uh, in an elevated way that's unique to us that sticks in their minds? And look, there's a right time and place for all of these. Uh, but I just did remember that Apple example and how deliberate. Next time you're watching an Apple keynote, think about what they're not saying, which I think is very fascinating. You hear everything they are saying, but there's so much implication because they're leading us into a path without explicitly telling us those things. Another resonation I had from this module was about the autonomy bias and this idea that humans are just wired to want to have control and as much control as possible in, in their decision making. And something that's crucially important to consider when you think about this is offering your customers choice, even if it's somewhat of a false choice, will always lead to better outcomes and better conversion. And literally using the phrase, like similarly, as you said, like adding one word, using the phrase, the choice is yours. So it's, we recommend X option, but Y and Z are also options for you. And the choice is yours. 
that will often, very often, according to Nancy, lead to better conversion outcomes because humans have this desire to want to control. And we both read the HBS Domino's Pizza case. And it was interesting to me there that the customizability of the pizza, despite not wanting to provide necessarily unlimited choice or stifling choice, the fact that you can make your pizza your own and they branded it like that, like you could even save your own pizza option so that when you went to the menu next time, you had this named pizza that you created yourself. That's going to always bring you back and back rather than someone's decided what's going to be on my pizza. This is my pizza. So leveraging that autonomy bias and really leveraging all of human biases, because we talked about with Ari, we talked about short-termism bias. I think in marketing, the reality is there are a lot of psychological biases and fallacies that that human beings fall into. We don't want to exploit those. We want to leverage them to positive outcomes. And basically, I think the, the non-coercive, efficient, effective marketing is marketing that gives individuals permission to do what they already want to do and allow them to do what's already in their hearts, but maybe their minds are holding them back. And you play to those hearts. Yeah, it does. Now that you reminded me of it, it is a much more painful choice, whether to do or not do something binary, as opposed to just choosing, okay, clearly this could benefit you. So here's two or three choices you have on how you can move forward is it seems to be much easier. And I think that's something that recently it's been more of a, hey, here's something you can have or not versus here's the different ways in which you can have something. Just so we make it connect the dots between where we started and where we're going. So with Ari Wallach and long-termism, we've been thinking about how can we get more clear on where we want to ultimately get to. With Nancy Harhut, now we're thinking about how do we bring people along to engage uh, in that journey, that impact that we're looking to create. The next module we have is all about mastering persuasion, which uh, fits in nicely. Uh, this is based on Jeff Cochran and Andres Lares, uh, where they wrote a book on the four critical steps to influence people and decisions. This brings us back to if Nancy's been talking more about like the behavioral science and the psychology and the latest cutting edge learnings. This is almost more like the timeless Aristotelian ways of telling a story and how people react to things. What uh, Jeff and Andres talked a lot about is this, that balance of the rational and the emotional and reminding us that if we want to bring people along, we got to demonstrate our credibility. We got to evoke emotion. We got to demonstrate our logic and we got to facilitate action. And one of the key things that came across to me as powerful here as a key new learning is that statements against your own self-interest can actually be very helpful when you're looking to persuade people. Nobody likes someone coming across as we are the perfection, we are the best, and you should obviously go for us. Like our reptilian brain is very like skeptical of somebody who claims to be all and know all and be the, be the total solutions. We like contrast, we like nuance. And we know from, for example, Frances Fry, when it comes to strategy, she says, well, don't just keep talking about what is it that you are, talk about also what you're not and what you're not good at. That's as important, probably even more important than strategy. So similarly here, I think when you're looking to persuade somebody, not don't just go on about how good you are at certain things, also be very specific about it. So for example, for me, based on this learning specific to what we do, it could be if you really want life-changing learning and connection in your life, we're there for you. But if you're don't want to reflect deeply in your on your life. If you don't really want to have behavior change, we're not for you. We're only for people who are willing to make change. We're only here for people who do want to deeply engage with others. If you'd rather just do your work and go home and not go too deep into the meaning of everything, then we're not for you. And what that does, probably it puts off some people. We're like, that sounds like too much. I don't want to change my behaviors. Great, they were probably never going to go for it anyway. But then those who deeply care about connecting deeply and changing their behavior they're seeing a much clearer contrast of what we are and what we're not. So that's one way I'm hoping to apply it more. We'd love to hear what you think. Yeah. So that's a matter of credibility. I think Jeff and Andres said that's basically leveraging what they called the trust equation. So what you're doing when you acknowledge a flaw in your own argument is you're demonstrating your credibility. 
using the trust equation by saying, basically getting across this point that you are looking out for the best interests of who you're speaking to above your own, in that you're not purely self-interested. And that's really one of the key ingredients to persuasion. There are two other key ingredients to persuasion, and this fourth addition that Jeff and Andres have made to Aristotle's original rhetorical devices. And Barry, you and I both took the famous course at Brown University called Persuasive Communication. And while I didn't go to Brown for college, I did manage to take this course. And here's a fun little sidebar. When I took that course, it was during a summer program. Barry had just graduated from Brown and I went that summer or the, the following summer when I was 18. And the dorm room that they gave me was the exact dorm room that Barry spent his entire senior year in, which I don't know if it was deliberate, but I always thought that was a wonderful synchronicity in the universe. But we learned these concepts of persuasive communication and these Aristotelian Aristotelian rhetorical devices. I remember when I was 18, I learned about with ethos, the example, and ethos is, is credibility. So that's what, what Barry was just talking about. With this concept of ethos, they gave the example of Mark Antony's funeral oration in William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. And what Mark Antony does, he says, friends, Romans, lend me your ears. And what he's doing is he's basically like bringing, he's putting the entire audience on his level. And famously, when this is performed at plays, the actor playing Mark Antony will often get off the stage and speak at eye level with the audience. And that's what he was said to have done at the funeral oration, which provides credibility because you basically say, I'm just like you, we're of the same group, our, our interests are aligned. And that will be super effective in persuasion. I had personal experience with this after learning that concept. I ran, I went back to high school, it was my senior year of high school after the summer program. I ran for student body vice president. We had to give a speech and I took the microphone off its stand and I took it in my hands and I sat at the edge of the stage and then like casually spoke to people. This was also the time of, I think Barack Obama, it was 2008, so Barack Obama was running for president. So I just tried to give this Obama-style, like hopeful, positive speech. And despite being new to the school, I managed to win that election. It was the last, my last election win. We'll see if it, any opportunities come up again to run for any kind of office. But ethos is, is extremely powerful. And the two others, pathos is about appealing to emotion and logos is about appealing to logic. I'll just give two examples. I love this topic, so I'll just give an example for each. So with pathos appealing to emotion, oftentimes the way we see this used is through fear-based negative emotions. And we'll see this coming out of politicians a lot in instilling fear to create some kind of fear-based action that is not necessarily in long-term interest, but very much plays to that short-termism of survival. However, much more effective persuasion comes through positive emotional responses. So if you create aspiration, inspiration, lay out a lay out a vision for the future that is truly better and motivating, you will oftentimes get better persuasive action in the long term. But there's this trade-off. It's the same way as saying what the flaws in your argument are, because you're going to alienate some people, but ultimately perhaps alienating some people while better bringing along those people who are always going to resonate with your message is the outcome that you want rather than convincing everyone. Because it's never about full consensus building. It's about building enough support to rally the crowd, whatever that crowd might be, whether that's at home with your family and with your kids, or whether it's running for political office at a national level. And for me, I just want to say one more thing. Persuasion gets a bad rep, I think. It sounds like, it feels like manipulation or a lot of people, maybe the more cynical part of our minds feels like being persuaded is being manipulated. But the reality is persuasion is not about winning the argument. It's exactly what we discussed with Nancy a minute ago. Persuasion is about allowing people to do the thing that they already want to do. It's allowing what's already in their hearts to come to fruition rather than outright brainwashing, manipulating, changing their minds. It's just bringing out what's already inside. And so these rhetorical devices are very powerful. And what Jeff and Andres added, which I really liked, what they added to Aristotle is they're all in the pursuit of facilitating action, not facilitating a specific action, but it's about facilitating an action. And that's really what effective communication is all about. It's about getting people to get from 
a point A to a point B by using effective logical arguments and narratives, by appealing to their more positive emotions and aspirational emotions, and then by building bridges with them. Beautifully said, Reed, and the course that you referred to at Brown, obviously led by the legendary Barbara Tannenbaum. So I want to give her a shout out. And funnily enough, we invited her as a speaker at a, an Ivy event prior to COVID. So she came and so we were in front of Ivy members. Our mom was there also in the audience and it was all about public speaking. And I had to go up there and introduce her. So <laughs> obviously that was, <laughs> I've never felt so judged in my life because it was the whole topic with everyone there, including my mom. So I don't think I did so great there. It was a uh, high pressure. But a really powerful course, excited, would, would encourage everybody to also look her up as well. When you mentioned Mark Anthony's speech, I did just pull up the specific quote because for a lot of what's, what you shared and what I was saying earlier, in two lines, Shakespeare manages to capture all of these things simultaneously. So the specific quote he said is, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar not to praise him. The evil that men do live after them, but the good is often buried with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. It's just amazing how he brings them all together. He says, I'm not here to cheer on Caesar. I'm here with you. And the good that people do, it typically gets buried with them. So he already creates this incredible contrast and dives in. Super powerful. And if anything, perhaps Shakespeare is underrated. Yeah. It's such a fantastic reminder. So... This is a good segue now to the fourth module we're going to be focusing on today. And this is all about gravitas, the eight strengths that redefine confidence by Lisa Sun. Lisa is the CEO and founder at Gravitas, which is an incredible impact-oriented fashion company. She is a former McKinsey consultant. And early on in her career journey, a partner at McKinsey told her, hey, you just need to have more gravitas. And she was like, what? What is that? What are you talking about? Can you be more specific? <laughs> and gravitas is like one of those things I feel when you see it, you feel it. When someone with gravitas walks into a room or opens their mouth, everybody pays attention and they trust that person and they go with it. I'm not going to go into the official definition and so forth. We can pull that up later. Just to share, Lisa breaks down, okay, what are the subcomponents of gravitas and she talks about people who can lead, perform, achieve. They know things. They're giving. They're believing. They create, and they're self-sustaining. So there's a lot of things there. And of all of those that she mentioned, the one that completely blew my mind because it relates so much to my super strength, but also maybe my ultimate weakness all in one is this one around believing. So she says that, and by the way, it's not just her opinions. She did McKinsey-style hardcore research on all of this, really figuring out what leads people to have that sense of gravitas. And obviously, if we want to do big things and create that better future, and we want to do that as a leader, the more gravitas we have, the better. So the believing part is all about leaders with gravitas truly believe in the people that are with them and the people that they're serving. So whether it's their colleagues or their constituents or their customers or stakeholders, this deep sense of belief. And this is in contrast to, let's say, alpha leadership of I'm the man I'm or woman and I'm going to get you there. It's much more about I believe in you. I believe in us. I believe in the future, just like a believer. And I think it's a superpower for me because without trying, I, whenever I meet somebody very quickly, like, I'm such a big believer in everyone is capable of anything. There is no cap on where somebody, how far someone could go. And from a very young age, I've always found everyone is capping themselves almost. Like they just have some kind of a self-created ceiling. Or obviously with all respect to everybody has a million different priorities, but still I've always felt from a young age. And when I was starting Ivy and all the things we've done without even thinking about it, I think I've been able to naturally communicate my deep belief in everyone and how much they can achieve and how much we could do together. So this is all very positive, right? But obviously that's half the story. Sometimes though, on the path to this belief and so on and so forth, like anybody else, sometimes I fear what if the things don't work out and this thing or that thing, or 
what if this person isn't really giving their best or what if this person's being destructive like that we talked uh, last episode a lot about ego mm. the fear that protects us but can also get in our way and I, I realize that when my trust is shaken in somebody because i'm such a believer in general the moment i turn that off and i don't come across that way i think it's very palpable with other people and it's a very destructive end goal. All of a sudden they might feel abandoned, no longer a part of the journey. I no longer believe in them. And obviously that then puts very much a cap on what more we could accomplish together. So every time I've done great, I really believed in people. Every time that I really got in my way was where that belief got blocked. The example Lisa gave of also someone who is a, like a great believer type leader that I think many I will resonate with is Ted Lasso from the TV show. And he's the opposite of this like alpha leader who's let's go. He's much more about just believing in others and getting people to believe in each other and the, the overall possibility and leading with that. And anyone who's watched the TV show will see that it can be incredibly effective and it makes you want to be a better person. So that's what came up for me. What about you, Vidal? Well, having known you my whole life, I can definitely attest to your immense belief in everyone that you meet. And I think it is quite infectious. And I think everyone who knows you, even slightly, would attest to that as well. Kudos to your Gravitas, Barry. It's making me think, it's making me think when I think about Gravitas in general, I was thinking about Barack Obama, and I listened to a podcast about his youth. And even when he was in his early 20s, there are examples of People, like he would walk into a room and he really would command the room. He wasn't anyone of note at that time, but he just had this way about him. He just had this natural commanding gravitas. And probably it's because he had similar belief and his presidential campaign later on was all about hope and it was quite positively messaged. But that made me reflect on the fact that, yeah, there are individuals with that natural gravitas with that natural talent with that natural self-assuredness now first off we we never get to see the other side with these individuals we don't see them on their dark days and they certainly have their dark days and they certainly have their self-doubts but i was considering with myself in terms of gravitas i've always considered myself a high self-esteem individual and i think other people who know me would describe me as a high self-esteem individual but it made me consider that self-esteem lisa calls this self-assurance it's interesting because it's so relative. The reality is you can have high self-esteem relative to one bar or standard that you set, and you can have relatively low self-esteem in a different bar. And I've always thought of my life as this kind of series of hills and then mountains that I've been climbing. And sometimes there are like valleys between these mountains too. And when I'm at the top of a hill, it's okay, I've got to the summit and I feel amazing and my self-assurance is so high because I've scaled that peak that I've been working on. And I can look around and see, okay, I can see my kind of relative position. I'm looking down. But then all of a sudden, you turn 180 degrees and look up again. And oh my goodness, there's this other peak. And when you're looking up at that other peak, or maybe you have to go down into a valley before you can even climb that peak, you think, my goodness, my self-esteem now feels so low relative to that peak. And there are people up on that peak. And how is that going to how's that going to work out for me? I've struggled with this. I don't think to my detriment. I think always toward my self-growth, but I have struggled with this, even though I would definitely be described as a high self-esteem individual. And there is a couple of things that I've developed. It wasn't very deliberate. It just came about. These are like trends that I developed on my own. One of them is this phrase that I have that anyone who spent enough time with me will hear. I say the phrase, I'm good at other things. And that's always my reminder to myself, not to accept that I'm only good at those things that I'm good at, but not to bring myself down in those areas where I'm not yet at my best and I'm not at where my potential can be. And then there are some areas, I think you can relate to this in, in the creative spheres, particularly in visual arts. I'm just, yeah, I'm good at other things. It's okay. I'm creative in other ways. But reminding that to myself, I think helps me with my gravitas because at any moment where I feel a sense of self-doubt, and we've talked about before on the pod that I enjoy public speaking, I, I don't really get nervous because I know that I'm good at that. But when I am in a more uncomfortable environment, I just remind myself, well, I'm good at other things. And sometimes creating those environments and those 
opportunities to feel, not only remind yourself, but to feel the things that you're good at and receive that positive validation and receive that kind of emotional income allows you to always in those situations where you feel like your gravitas is lower, you feel your self-esteem a little bit lower. It helps you hold your shoulders up a bit higher and it's not pretend. It's, yeah, I'm good at other things and and I you can feed on the energy of whatever that prior experience was. So it's all about, I think, I, I really work hard to embrace my natural talents and leverage them to allow me to get better at those things I'm not so naturally talented at to give me the kind of the fuel. Because I think gravitas is all about that kind of emotional fuel at the end of the day. It's not, there isn't some objective measure. Everyone is capable of it because everyone is good at other things. And that's a beautiful thought in my view. It, and that's maybe true belief. That's what Ted Lasso looked at and looked for in his players. What are you good at? Not what are you bad at or what do you need to improve on? Just what are you good at? And that's a good foundation and starting point to any discussion about improvement. I do think that we all have a choice when we come across other people and or a given situation. We can start with what sucks about this person or this situation and how do I counter that? Or whoever it may be in the same situation, same person, we could look for what makes this person super special. What is it that is great about them and what is great about the situation, even if it's a tough situation? what's still like things to be grateful for, or, like the diamonds in the rough of what's going on, zeroing in on that and then thinking about how can we bring the more of the good to, how can we remove the blockers in the way of those strengths? So Lisa talks about this and we did this a lot in the work we did with organizations and in, as individual business leaders, really getting people to zero in on what are, what you, as you called it without, what are your natural talents and strengths? And what needs to happen for more of that to come through and shine through. And if we are the kinds of people that if we are able to do that with ourselves, but I would say even more importantly, when we enter a room or a conversation, we bring that vibe of, wow, this person is the strength finder. This is the person that makes other people into superheroes and gets them to double down. <laughs> Seems much more uplifting, galvanizing. And I, I can't imagine someone with very high gravitas that makes everybody else feel like shit. Right. With that said, obviously, with the best of intentions, right, reflecting on the four modules we talked about. So if we really want to bring that long term focus, if we want to really be great at convincing other people through behavioral science, through persuasion, if we really want to bring that gravitas, this all requires a tremendous amount of intention. And what I found is if you don't have the intention, it's not going to happen. If you don't, even if you have the intention, but then you don't create time and space to make that intention come to life, it's also not going to happen. So I do find that there's this powerful formula. Of, is there a clear intention? Is there time and space? Okay. And then within that time and space, okay, what are you doing then to make your intention come true? What gets in the way, I think most often, sometimes the intention really is missing or unclear. So that's even to come up with the intention, we need to create time and space, right? But then, yeah, even if we have it, we still then need to create time and space to follow through on the uh, intention. And what blocks that most often is boundaries. We need to set boundaries. And that's what the fifth and final module we're going to be talking about today. Nedra Glover Tawab wrote this wonderful book on how to set boundaries to find peace and a guide to reclaiming yourself. And that might come across, oh, it's just all about the self. But I actually believe this is for individuals, for companies, for nation states, for humanity at large. Without boundaries, there is no time and space. That's carved out for anything. Everything blends into each other and we're unable to focus. She talks about, first of all, we all like know boundaries are important, but all of us are like, okay, I'll talk for myself. <laughs> My understanding of anything deeper than that was like kindergarten level. Yeah, boundaries are important, but what boundaries? And then if, even if I have them, how do I communicate about them? And how do I actually adjust my life based on boundaries? This was not, I was a kindergartner versus Nedra takes this like PhD level approach to it, which I think we can all benefit from. So first of all, she talks about boundaries are specifically around time, material things like money, emotional boundaries, sexual boundaries, intellectual boundaries, and physical boundaries. So there's six different types of boundaries, first and foremost. And when it comes to all of them, she says, really doing a time audit on based on how your life is, how you're spending your life, 
where do you want to create new habits? Where do you want to create time and space for, to be different? And then how do you best communicate around those boundaries to make sure that other people are also on board and can support you with those boundaries? What to me resonated most from all the lessons she said is, first of all, I reflected on the fact that the times I've set the most successful boundaries, as soon as I became an entrepreneur within a few months of working seven days a week, I decided, okay, Saturdays, sacred time, it's Shabbat, it's Sabbath, like not working during Saturdays, like from Friday night to Saturday night, no work, no talking about work. That boundary really worked for me. I also at some point stopped eating pork and shellfish. And once I set the boundary, these are not hard. Like I don't have an internal struggle. It's such a clear boundary and it's so easy to communicate about. Like I just, people just know that I don't work on Saturdays and I don't eat these two things. It's not a huge deal but it's very easy to communicate. The issue is everything else in my life, if I could be as clear on boundaries and communicating them, things would be a lot better for me. I, I think what I need to do based on Nedra's teachings is to really think about, okay, if I had to have a portfolio of boundaries at work and at home to really ensure that I'm bringing the best out of myself, I'm bringing the best out of others, and I'm best delivering for the customers and the societies that we serve, what boundaries could best serve, right? So when we strategy, we keep thinking about SWOT analysis and things like this, but we don't really have a boundary strategy. Mm -hmm. It comes back to Francis Farhan, like, what are we not going to do, right? And how do we best communicate about that and so forth? So what I want to do as a next step on this is to say, okay, the Saturday is not working has served me really well because I'm a freaking lion on a Sunday. I'm so rested that my brain is like, and then I only work on creative stuff on Sunday now, and then the rest of the week commences from there. So what else could work as boundaries? Another set of boundaries we created at Ivy, which is great is, now we're introducing everybody to one new thought leader and releasing a new interview every single day. So it's very easy to communicate. It's very easy to stick, it's hard work, but once you know that's the boundary, then everybody pulls in the same direction. I think we're probably two or three boundaries short of where we need to be to make sure the rest of it is done. And so boundaries around how we communicate and boundaries around for those who want to dive deeper, how we want to move them through. I think in a, there is a world in which we could look at everything that's holding us back and think about which boundaries could help us get there. And it comes back to something I talk about a lot, intention, creating time and space, but knowing that if you want to create a container and time and space for something, you can't do it without boundaries. Uh, it's not enough just to put a calendar invite. It's a calendar invite and what absolutely cannot happen during that time block and what absolutely has to happen during that time block. Can't wait to set some boundaries right <laughs> away. As we're done with this, uh, how did it come across for you? Without yeah, look, boundaries, it can feel like rules, right? But I think boundaries aren't rules. Boundaries are about setting guardrails and it's like setting the kind of norms and expectations around something and the reality is placing a boundary doesn't necessarily enforce that boundary so it really does have to come from within so any boundary that you want to set in any aspect of your life you have to stick to that boundary first and foremost and if you don't if you're not consistent about it no one else will even one time the, the one time you relax, it really is a slippery slope. So Barry, the fact that you don't work on Saturdays, you have been, sometimes you'll even argue with our dad about it when he really wants to talk business on Saturday and he says, this is the only time we see each other, but you're very consistent. Absolutely not. And that consistency is quite crucial. Earlier in my career, obviously I actually didn't want to work on weekends, but I was in the habit of responding to emails or responding to a message on a Saturday. And then naturally it just became this kind of expectation of, okay, he's not really off on the weekends. He's on sometimes. And so I respect your consistency. And I think having that consistency is beneficial to both parties because now I'm going to use the word rules in not a negative way. It's in a positive way. Having defined rules of the game allows people to have consistent and consistent application of those rules, allows everyone to understand where they fit, how they can behave, what really what those boundaries truly are. If you go back to the formation of humanity and at our roots, tribes had tribal boundaries and this ultimately became the borders of nations. When the borders of nations are in flux or they're moving, it creates conflict. But when 
you draw that line and you say, this is the line. And maybe there's a bit of back and forth. I don't want to encourage war. That's just historically what's happened. You'll have conflict back and forth until you've reached this equilibrium point. And then it's okay, I guess, fine. Like this is the boundary and it's a line that you don't cross. And when you do cross that line, it's unacceptable. And there's a cost to, to crossing that line. So in, in setting boundaries, you have to both consistently live up to the boundaries that you set for yourself, but also show that there are costs when those boundaries are crossed. Doesn't mean conflict. It just means that everyone needs to understand what the rules of the game are, and then everybody can perform better if they have a common understanding for those rules. And really clear communication is what's ultimately required. And oftentimes, I believe our failure in boundaries is not clearly communicating what the boundaries really are, what our boundaries are. And maybe that starts with ourselves, not clearly communicating to ourselves, these are my boundaries and I'm going to stick with them. Because if you can't stick with them yourself, you can't get frustrated that nobody else is respecting your boundaries. 100%. Uh, on that note, I asked Nedro during this interview, I said, what about those super toxic people who just roughshod over every boundary you have, or they try to, they're completely unreasonable and so forth. And what she said is obviously try your best to communicate and be clear and all that. But if someone is repeatedly not respecting those boundaries, you need to take away the keys. For example, if somebody keeps barging into your house when you don't want them to, because they have keys to your house, you can take away the keys. You can change the locks. This is a, obviously an extreme example in a way. And what's the equivalent of that? For example, if uh, somebody keeps texting you on the weekend about work uh, and they won't stop no matter what you say, you can take away the keys, which is block their number, have a weekend phone. They literally cannot. It's not even possible mm. for them to get through to you. Uh, it could be something like that. That's interesting when it comes to toxic people trying to roughshod our <laughs> own boundaries. But as you were saying, sometimes we're the toxic person mm. breaking our own boundaries, right? Where it's us versus us. And I think that's actually the toughest ever. Okay. I need to write this super important proposal. I want to get it done in 60 minutes, but let me grab a coffee. Let me look at social media. Let me do this. Oh, actually I forgot to tell Vidal to do this. And like, there is like a thousand ways in which, you know, it's supposed to be a sacred concert It's 60 minutes this is what I'm going to do. And if it gets, we're pulled in every direction. Again, one of the interviews yesterday, the interviewee said it takes the brain six minutes to warm up to a task, to get into flow. You can't just jump into it. It takes six minutes. If during those six minutes, you like get yourself distracted in a million ways, you're just pushing forward to six minutes where it might literally take you days or weeks to actually get into it. I know you and I <laughs> relate. Six minutes, sometimes six days. <laughs> it's only six minutes, but it's if you keep delaying it. Yeah, you can delay yeah. it by six days. Anyway, so I think the ba setting boundaries with ourselves and taking the keys away, right? So if trying to not look at social media when your phone is right next to you and all you have to do is unlock it versus if your phone is off, if it's in a different room or whatever, like you're in a, you don't even bring it with you to the space where you have to physically get up and go somewhere else to grab it. Like we said earlier, 95% of our decisions are not even conscious. So when we check social media or get distracted, we don't decide to do that. It just happens. Because it's easy, it gives us a dopamine kick, and our body is just it, it is geared up to do that. There's also a video I watched last night. There's the person within us that is the wise routine maker, the planner, who's like wisely planning everything. But then there's this toddler, and those are our like habits that are just like not caring about anything. We just go for it without even thinking. And how do we get the planner and the toddler to be allied? And I think a lot of times we got to just take away the key. I just want to add. Yeah. Nedra says this as well. In, in setting boundaries, we also have to be realistic and set achievable boundaries because she, she talks about how that consistency is important within ourselves as well. It's not just about the signal it sends to everybody else. So if you set an extreme boundary, which is I don't exercise much, so now I'm going to exercise for one hour every single day. The reality is if you cannot consistently live up to that boundary, then you you actually push yourself to give up. So it is there is an incrementalism to this and not going absolute black and white, zero to 100, and slowly pushing that boundary outward wherever it, it needs to go, wherever the end state you want to get to is. But this is, this is actually, to go back to Ari, this is the difference between short and long-term thinking. 
Because if you're thinking in the long term that I want to ultimately get here, then you can allow yourself to take a bit more of an incremental approach because you actually, you're taking on a lot of risk when you go with the extreme approach of zero to a hundred. It's either or. And the same with you, Barry, I think you, you say that, I think your Saturday habit or ritual or boundary, it didn't happen from one day to the next. You did ultimately build up to it. And building up to these boundaries is important because it gets us consistently comfortable and it allows us to always implement that with consistency. So if you're not sure that you can be absolutely consistent, set a boundary that you are more confident in being consistent in, and then I think you'll get to better results. If you overextend yourself, you're going to lose faith in your own self and the boundary is going to fail at that point. And that's counterproductive as well. Beautifully said. And um, we're up on an hour. I want to give one final thought and maybe take this boundary conversation and apply it a bit at a, a larger scale above and beyond an individual basis. And we can wrap with that. So clearly these boundaries are critical for us as individuals, also our organizations. What do we do and what do we absolutely not do? Having total clarity and guidelines on that. Not only will it stop us from crazy ethical breaches, but also it can keep us really focused and allow everybody to take initiative when they know that, okay, these are the boundaries and outside of these, anything is game. Then also it can lead to incredible creativity and innovation. And we know that the best innovations and best art takes place not when you have an unlimited budget and an unlimited canvas, but rather when mm. there's some limits and within that limit that you can create, have this incredible innovation and creativity. Scaling it up to a national level, I think to myself, for example, in the United States and free societies around the world, rigorous debate and disagreement and pushing each other is encouraged. That's how we get to the truth. But if that gets to the point of telling lies to manipulate people, where people can't trust each other at all or leveling up to a level that could be actually like all, like equivalent to treason, for example, where just to get your way, you're like sacrificing the rest of the country and its future or starting an insurrection or a civil war. Clearly, we know that even in a free society, you can incite riots and hate crimes and things like this. So some boundaries allow for real. So yeah, be free, but as long as you don't encroach on the freedoms of others. So at a national level, that's true. And then at an international level, we're clearly a non-political organization here at Ivy. At the same time, there are things that are beyond politics. So the Geneva Convention that deals with what, what's permissible, even in war, even in total war, what's permissible or not permissible is a thing. Deliberately attacking and torturing civilians is, is against the Geneva Convention now. Biological and chemical warfare is against. So even in war, uh, there are boundaries we don't want to cross. Now, with nuclear weapons and the Cold War, stay the Cold War, in my opinion, because both sides had nuclear weapons and it was very clear what the boundaries were, which is we clearly can't have a hot war with each other because then everybody dies. So that was clear. But then short of that, there is all kinds of how far can we go? What can we do to quote unquote win? And very sadly, last Saturday, the attacks in Israel were conducted in a way where civilians were very specifically targeted and treated in a way that, and I think, morally abhorrent to pretty much anyone other than really twisted individuals. So there are those boundaries that I do believe can also help us transcend sometimes where things are complex and not clear. But can we just agree on what should absolutely not happen and how can we make sure of that? I think it is a, is a really critical thing. Obviously, that's a whole another conversation. But I thought that since we were talking about boundaries, I thought this was an important one. And what you said about we got to also communicate the boundaries, what Nedra was saying too, there's different ways of communicating. But if certain things are not acceptable, whether it's verbally, physically, militarily, how do we make sure that uh, people don't cross cert certain lines so that it beca doesn't become permissible because... If it became fair game for people to just go in and do whatever they want to anyone to achieve their political aims, I don't think that's a world any of us would want to live in, certainly in this audience. And how can we then make sure that in our long-term future and vision, how do we avoid a wor world where that doesn't happen? What needs to be true? And what can we unite around? That's something else that came up for me. And I'll uh, pass it over to you for any concluding thoughts you might want to share. Yeah, 
it's just making me think about utopianism that we talked about at the closing of last week's episodes. And these are all, these were very utopian ideas, but they're also not new ideas. The Geneva Convention is a particular institution that you're mentioning, but over the years, there's the Declaration of Independence, there's the UN Declaration of Human Rights, and all of these boundaries are imperfectly applied. However, they are over time becoming norms. So the the reality is that abhorrent violence used to be more acceptable in society, and now it is less acceptable. And that is the nature of human progress. So a boundary not applied perfectly doesn't mean it cannot be a boundary at all. It's about consistently reinforcing the setting of those boundaries. And in the darkness of the events of the last week and the horror of that, it still reminds me that overall the path of humanity is a positive one. Overall, the incidence of violence, the respect for individual liberty and rights is far greater than it ever has been. And Today is the best version of humanity, in my view, that there's ever been, and tomorrow will be even better. Maybe not not day by day, there's ups and downs, but certainly the trend is, is upwards. And a lot of that is rooted in the evolution of these boundaries. Um, but an intention had to be set, depending on what your moral, moral spiritual uh, roots are, I'm certain that there are if if not if not millennia old at least centuries old moral boundaries and utopian ideas of how we should behave that were certainly at the time that those ideas came about were not put into practice with any level of consistency but now slowly but surely we're moving towards that consistency and we will continue to add not just respect for other human beings but respect for our environment respect for our planet respect for our galaxy universe and so on all of this will come with time, and we, but we have to believe that we can improve. And we have to believe that these boundaries can be enforced and accepted by everybody. And if we can't believe in a peaceful, united world, we're going to end up in a divided and violent world. So I think that positive voice, that vision, the individuals with gravitas that get those messages across, but also the individuals with gravitas that can very clearly define a boundary and act accordingly when boundaries are crossed in, in, to ensure that, that boundary is respected is, is crucially important. So in the darkest of days, I hope there's steps forward towards, towards ultimate light. Absolutely. And on that note, I was in Berlin last week for the first time in my life. And I arrived there on Monday night and it was just about... Just before midnight, I met a really good friend, Arya. Bill, just like we met literally at Brandenburg Gate. So that was the first time I'd seen it. And then he told me when we met, hey, do you know that at midnight tonight is the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall and that message of unity? And we got on scooters. We went around Berlin, like past midnight, a city tour. We went to where the German parliament is. And of course, in my head were like visions of Hitler's speeches there with hundreds of thousands of Nazis in that lawn. But what could have been a very depressing or a negative place, now I looked at Berlin and I was like, wow, today, Berlin, after the Nazis, after the division of Berlin between East and West Germany, after all of that, now it's one of the most accepting, forward-thinking, welcoming places in the entire world. And that gave me tremendous hope. So certainly as human beings, we're capable of immense good. We're also capable of immense evil. It is within us, the both capabilities. We got to choose where we want to go. But to your point, Vidal, like if we can't believe in a future where we can keep getting better, uh, we're unlikely to get there. I do believe progress is possible. We've come a tremendously long way, but sometimes it can be two steps forward, one step back. I think in the last week, we're seeing a big step back, sadly. However, I do think a, a better world is possible. And being in Berlin last week, definitely reminded me of that. On that note, our mission, enabling people to achieve their most important goals through learning together, deeply connecting together, changing our behaviors together, supporting each other, keeping each other accountable. All of this requires a boundary around openness. So if we need to be able to share our stories. We need to be able to learn from diverse opinions. We need to be able to try things even if we don't uh, uh, always succeed. So I think any 
society that encourages that kind of discourse and exchange is a society destined to get better over time versus any society that hinders that and burns their books and bans voices from getting heard. Those societies are, I think, less likely to succeed. So here's to more unity, more openness, more support, and boundaries against horrible acts against our fellow humans. Yeah. Amen. Great way to close it this week. Absolutely, Vidal. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. If you want to dive deeper with the five modules we discussed, they're all on ivy.com and the Ivy app. And we've got a whole new five coming up in the week ahead. So hope to see you at the next pod. And thank you again for being willing to learn and grow. I hope you take something from today, share it with your loved ones, share it with your colleagues, and level up together. Till next time, take care, everybody. Bye, all. Ciao. Ciao.